I'm going to dismiss them now, the older children, up to fifth grade. Your teachers are waiting for you in the education center. Well, again, good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here for this Imagine series. We're, we're smashing together Christmas and our church's mission and kind of who, our, who God's called us to be, our DNA, and, and leading all the way up to our, our uh, end-of-the-year banquet. It's going to celebrate 20 years as a church. And so before we get to the second half of this uh, sermon series, let's pray, and we're going to ask for God's help. God, we do ask for your help today. We know that when we come to these big eternal concepts, it's, it's not enough that I talk. That you must be the one who speaks. You must be the one who teaches. So I'm asking now and unashamedly in front of my friends that you would be our teacher, that the Holy Spirit would fill this room with his presence and power, with his words, so that uh, the implication of Christmas would come onto us with fresh relevance today. And so that we may stand as Jesus' people better than we did yesterday. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's ask that question, shall we? What, what are the implications of Christmas? What, what does Christmas imply? What do you know of the ramifications coming down the pipe? We well, say, well, Rick, that's probably easy to answer. Number one implication of Christmas is that my pocketbook is going to get lighter. Number two, second implication of Christmas is that my credit card bill is going to get longer. Number three, third implication of Christmas is that my schedule is going to get insaner, right? Something like that. So, yeah, these are, right, obvious uh, implications of Christmas. Uh, but what if we looked at Christmas not as the midwinter shopping festival, but rather as what we talked about last week? Remember, we got this kind of the shocking implications of the incarnation. And so here we are, these strange people who believe that Christmas is God arriving on planet Earth, fused with the human nature. Now, if that's what Christmas is, then let's answer the question, what are the implications of that fact? Well, we could go on and list a whole bunch. I'll just list a few here. The implications of Christmas, if that is true, if the incarnation uh, is true. Number one is redemption. I mean, that's implied in the incarnation, right? God has come to save. Now, certainly, uh, it, our full redemption wasn't purchased at Christmas, uh, but on Calvary, but... Christmas was a necessary precondition, right? And the Bible's very clear about this. We talked about this last week. For only by being fitted with the human nature can Jesus be the perfect mediator between God and mankind. So redemption is implied in the incarnation. But also identification. We talked about this last week too. The enfleshing of the eternal one in human skin means something. It means that God is for us. It means that God is with us. It means that God understands us. It means that God identifies with us. And so like a great coach who has played the game, and he's been through the hardships of the game, and he's uh, been hurt in the game, and he uh, has been disciplined to play the game and done it perfectly, so now he's earned our trust, and he says, follow me. That's all implied in the incarnation, identification. But also affirmation. The incarnation is like the supreme affirmation of human life and dignity, and worth. And from that, human liberation naturally follows. I mean, no matter who you are, think about it like this. If Jesus was born in a cave with the animals, and born into straw poverty, if God, as go, goes the line in the old hymn, did not um, detest or loathe the virgin's womb, if all that's true, then human life matters. I mean, it's the ultimate affirmation of human value. And from that springs human liberation. 
G.K. Chesterton, a great Christian writer of about 100 years ago, he wrote about this saying, it would be vain for me to attempt to say anything adequate about the change which this conception of a deity born like an outcast or even an outlaw had upon the whole conception of law and its duties to the poor and the outcast. He says, it is profoundly true to say that after that moment, the moment of incarnation, there could be no slaves. And he went on to talk about the implications uh, of, the, of the incarnation for human rights. I mean, think about it. It was actually embedded in the, in the hymn that we had sung for us earlier. You know, you, you sometimes don't miss it. It's embedded in the third verse. In his name, all oppression shall cease. There's profound affirmation in the incarnation. And then, maybe most obvious of all, there's, there, there's adoration implied in the incarnation. I mean, how can the word made flesh not press us down to our knees with wonder and awe? I'm really excited for us all on January. We're going to do a worship series. And we're just going to explore what it means to worship. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. But listen, if this babe in a cattle trough is really king of the universe, condescending to love us, then how can that not drive us to wonder and awe and adoration and worship? So that's a huge implication for Christmas. But there's one more, and that's what we want to focus on today, mission. This last implication of Christmas really relates to AC3's uh, history and um, last 20 years too. So that's going to be the smash up today. Uh, now you could say that this implication of mission is more than just implied about Christmas. For when Jesus reflected on his own incarnation at the end of his life, right before his own mission on earth was completed, he prayed. And here's what he prayed. He prayed about mission and he connected incarnation with mission with these words. He said, as you sent me into the world, that's the incarnation. I also have sent them, that is my followers, that's you people. I have sent them into the world. John 17 verse 18. As you send me, I have sent them. You see, Christmas is God on a mission. And as God embarks on this mission, the implication is direct from Jesus to parallel his missional activity with the expectation for you, who is a beneficiary of his missional activity. You are sent on mission because God in Christmas was on a mission. So that's what we want to explore today. And there's a bunch of scriptures that unpack how God with us directly translates into us with the world. I mean, it's direct. And so let's explore those, shall we? Um, there's a bunch of different Christmas passages. Some of them are sort of unexpected. First, we realize that part of mission that Jesus sends us on in Christmas is to be sent to serve. And this comes right out of Paul's famous Christmas passage. You didn't know that Paul wrote a Christmas passage, did you? You thought maybe only about Luke chapter 2 and shepherds and Matthew 2 and wise men and all that jazz. Well, Paul writes about Christmas in Philippians chapter 2 with these words. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. That's Christmas. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So this is Paul's Christmas story, right? 
But it's not the Christmas story from the human or temporal perspective. It is the Christmas story from the heavenly perspective. And from that perspective, from the perspective of heaven, the incarnation is God on a mission. And the mission of the incarnation was about serving. It was about serving. It was about becoming, stronger words than servanthood, becoming a slave. God, king of the universe, becoming a slave. Jesus would later put his own mission with these words. He would say, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man was sent not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, of course, only Jesus can fill that role. Only Jesus can serve our great sin debt need by his own ransom payment. However, he expects his followers to be sent with the same attitude, says Paul. With the exact same attitude, a servant's heart for the need of the world. It's direct. Christmas directly relates to your mission to be a servant. Now let me illustrate with, uh, with Hollywood. Um, have you ever noticed how often Hollywood kicks out two almost identical movies from two different studios in the same year? Isn't that weird? So we got like two Columbus movies that come out the same year. We have two Wyatt Earp movies. Two asteroids hit the world and knock out all life on planet Earth movies in the same year, right? Although the Bruce Willis one was a lot better. And so in, uh, in 1998, it happened again with two highly successful animated movies. Pixar's A Bug's Life and DreamWorks came out with a movie called Ants with a Z, spelled with a Z, right? And, and both of these were about the life of ants. But interestingly, both heroes turned the ant world upside down. So in Ants, uh, Woody Allen, <laughs> what a perfect casting call that was, plays Z, this neurotic uh, uh, worker ant who grows tired of conformity. So in the ant world, where everyone knows how to play a key role, Z questions his constantly. And that's the conflict in the movie. In both movies, however, the hero goes off to seek self-fulfillment outside the life of serving others in the colony. Well, okay, this makes for an interesting plot, I admit it. Uh, the ant colony is infused with some good old-fashioned American individualism, right? Let's have that translated into an ant colony. That's interesting. But they both completely miss the wonder and beauty of the ant, which, by the way, God lauds and praises in the Bible on several occasions. They just miss the wonder of ants. The identity of the ant colony, friends, we know this, is not totalitarianism. It's not tyranny. That's not, that's not what an ant colony represents. It doesn't represent forced slavery. No, an ant colony represents voluntary servanthood. That's what it represents. That's its beauty. That's its glory. A colony of thousands of ants performs like a well-oiled machine because each ant serves. Each ant works and works solely for the common good and not self-interest. I mean, it's an unbelievable picture. Without technology, without generals or jails, without governments or laws or officials, the ant colony moves dirt mounds three times the size of our skyscrapers relative to the size of the ant. This is amazing. Well, these movies just illustrate how our world loves to submarine servanthood. We take that whole beautiful picture and just dismiss it. Meh, stupid ants. The people who wrote these scripts, I think, were like the kid, you know, just sees an anthill and just can't help but step in it. 
right? That's what we did. We just dismissed it. We submarine servanthood. Servanthood is ugly. It's being, here's a word, servile. That's a vi- There's vials right in the middle of that word. Servile. Submission is servitude. Obedience is weakness. Consider yourself before others. That's the message of these movies. And yet, if we believe in Christmas, the implication is that we should embrace the same mission Jesus embraced. The voluntary act of putting aside power and privilege and position to serve the needs of a lost and dying world. The kenosis passage, that's what Philippians 2 is. Kenosis comes from the Greek word that Paul uses there, to empty, to empty. And this is what Jesus does. To consider others as better than yourself. Now, how does this relate to AC3 and our mission, our DNA? Well, I'll tell you, for 20 years, loving outsiders for us has been about a mission to serve. And you look around this church at the vast array of ministries that have been launched by AC3ers. It happened not because Rick was so clever. It happened because someone did their own Christmas. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to me how much has been launched by you. I mean, I'm really unbelievably proud of you. In my prayer times, I just thank God for you. Because there's people in this church who get Christmas. And when you get Christmas, you accept the attitude of Jesus, and you begin to invade a dark world with good deeds and help uh, and need meeting for the world's great problems. And so over the last 20 years... You just have spontaneously done Christmas. I'll give you some examples. From the beginning of AC3 Creek Kids, I mean, I, did, I can't tell you how little I've done to make Creek Kids go. And yet, it's a shining ministry in our church. It's been led over 20 years by serving courageous, selfless people. Mostly women leaders who have built this ministry from scratch and poured in their time and their talent and their treasure into making Creek Kids the best hour of your kids' week and my kids' week. And my kids, they're now, my biological kids are 23 uh, and 21, and they still remember lessons from Cree kids. Uh, and AC3 are launched Seeds of Grace ministry by gleaning bread from a bunch of different stores, and they're just giving it away to a few dozen people on Saturday mornings. That's how it started. And that led to hundreds, yes, thousands of families in our town. Thousands of needy people being served. And today, that just continue, it's expanded and expanded. And then the palette of services offered at Seeds goes from beyond free food to job training and mentorship and resume prep and you name it to try to extend that cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Somebody's doing Christmas, friends. AC3's youth ministry. All right? I, you, I was a youth pastor. You'd think maybe I really launched that thing and then gave it to somebody. Not even once. Not from day one. From day one, some courageous volunteer who just loves students said, I'll start that. And it's been carried on by more courageous leaders who just loved students. Junior hires. They love junior hires. It's a miracle. In, in 20 years, Christmas has inspired all-out efforts to serve the needs around us, to reach deep into our community by putting on community concerts, by creating a farmer's market, by fundraising. That this make a Christmas deal you see in the program, that's about just spontaneously, AC3 years have said, I'm going to do Christmas. I'm going to do what God did in Christmas. I'm going to serve the great needs. So they looked around. They saw the vulnerable and the weak. 
and that's something that's really near and dear to my heart, foster children who are coming out of abuseful and neglectful homes, and they're unbelievably vulnerable, and there's a, a home that services those, those precious children, and they just want to fundraise to help them. That they're just doing Christmas. There are those in our church who launch mission trips to foreign countries, mobile medical clinics in Malawi, launching nonprofits in foreign countries, local nonprofits to serve men in our town to help them be equipped to be great in their families and in their churches and in their world. There's a new prison ministry that the, that the elders are going to commission just in the next couple of, of weeks. This blows me away, but friends, every time I see it, I realize somebody else gets it. Somebody else gets Christmas. Because Christmas was God serving the great need of the world. And so service has been our mission. We talk every few weeks about the empty chair. We're talking about toy distribution this month, cold weather, shelter, volunteering, volunteering at Creek Kids on, on Saturday night. You can just call friends and we'll help you get plugged in. But just follow the lead of Christmas. Here's a second implication, though, and that is that uh, the mission means we're also sent to tell. The implications of Christmas settled on those shepherds. So talk about a Christmas passage here. We've got one. The shepherds on the night of of Jesus' birth. How, here's how it's summarized by Luke in Luke chapter 17, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. After seeing them, that is the shepherds, after seeing the Holy Family, they reported the message. They were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. I love this. You know why? Because the instinct falls on them right away. Christmas is about a story to tell. Christmas implies that we've been sent with a mission and a story to tell. Christmas implies communication. In fact, in John chapter 1, we realize that Jesus' word, or the name for Jesus is Word, the Word of God. He is what the Father has to say, C.S. Lewis says, and there was never a time when the Father wasn't saying it. He is the message that we are communicating, an enfleshed message. So, so it makes sense that Christmas gave the shepherds a mission to tell. But now let's uh, reflect for a second on what the content of that message was. Because guess what? They got it all from the angels. Backing up. Um, at, before they started, you know, telling, here's the message. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. I mean, let's stop there for a second. So much content in the message that we tell in just that one line. The shepherds get the entire content of Christmas, of the message there. The first part of the message is simple, right? Tell about a Savior who's been born in fulfillment of all the prophecy of the Jewish people. A hero who has come to fulfill the longings. But not just really the longings of the Jewish people, the longings of all the people. Now, I think about this. You know, we talk about a mission to tell some of you. Let's just be honest. You were embarrassed to talk about your faith. If the situation ever came up, you'd shy away from it, and that's just being honest. But the truth is, the message of a Savior resonates so deeply with every human heart. You have an automatic in. You do. You have an automatic in because every one of us longs for a hero. You know, you look back in literature, going back to ancient times, people seem hardwired to expect and to want heroes. And the Jewish people have it embedded in their prophecy to expect and want a hero. But not just them. 
The pagan cultures and mythologies and the pagan religions even are, are, are looking towards and reaching out for that hero who will come to rescue us. And do you think anything's changed today? <laughs> hero worship is bigger today maybe than it's ever been. Marvel Comics, they used to repeatedly sell the, the rights to their heroes, the, the character rights to movie studios, you know, for a certain amount of money. Until 10 years ago, they finally realized that movies about superheroes outgross almost all other movies combined. And that was when some genius said, hey, let's make the movies ourselves. So now Marvel has their own movie division. They make their own movies about their own superheroes to take advantage of your obsession with Ant-Man. Right? Because they realize that they're, they're, they're mining into a deep vein of need. A deep vein of anticipation that there could be, there would be, there may be perhaps one who could rescue us from our great problem. And so here comes the Christian story, which you are on mission to tell if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning. It's like this. The hero has come, and in true hero form, he has landed in disguise. He wears a mask of a baby. He wears a mask of being born into straw poverty. And yet when we need him, he is ready to save us from disaster, a self-imposed disaster, from our own choices. That's the message. That's what we're here to tell. That's what you are on mission to tell. And you are sent, like the shepherds, to tell it. Now, some of you might have a problem for this very reason, that it feels like a myth. It feels like the old mythologies of the, of the arriving and dying God and all that kind of jazz. It sounds like other mythological religions, but you see that fact that it sounds like those other stories is part of the genius of God and the Christian faith at Christmas time. C.S. Lewis reflected on this. Here's what he said. He said, the heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the arriving and dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of real history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. And so, he says, we pass from a Balder or an Osiris, mythological heroes, dying nobody knows where or when, to a historical person crucified. It is all in order under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That, he says, is the miracle. To be sent to tell, AC3, means the story we tell is the story. It's not just a story, it's the story. And 90% of our movies and the books that you're reading are wrapped around the same longings of the human heart. The message is that the one who satisfies the longings that all people who have ever lived have always had to be rescued is finally here. And that's your message. It's not a myth. It's the myth. It's also true. It happened. But there's more. There's more to tell. Verse 13, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. So what is the content of the message besides the fact that the hero has come? Focus on the words of the angels. Glory to God, peace on earth to people he favors. For hundreds of years in the Western world, we have labored under a mistranslation of the original Greek. 
because every single one of you, and myself included, memorized the words of the angels differently, didn't we? We memorized it like this. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Right? Have you ever asked yourself, what does that mean? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Uh, uh, peace on earth uh, when there is no peace? Generic good feelings of goodwill for everybody? I mean, these platitudes are suited perfectly for a Hallmark gift card or for a Miss Universe uh, pageant contestant. You know, I, what, I just want peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's all I want. Well, unfortunately for them, that's not really what the angel said. The angel said, peace on earth over people of a certain kind. Not limited in its distribution. The angel already said to all peoples, right? They already said that. But limited by a key condition. There is a condition for the peace of God that comes through his chosen hero. And that condition, AC3, is grace. And peace to all whom are the Lord our God may favor by his pleasure and his grace. The angels say, peace rests not on the earth because there has been no peace on earth in the last 2,000 years. But peace rests on people whom God graces, whom God bestows his favor to by faith. And so the angels give the gospel in a phrase. Peace will come to you from the hero whom God sends through his grace. And it cannot be earned. It is only on those on, whose, on whom his favor rests. You can't uh, have real peace without it. And that is the content the shepherds have been sent to tell. And again, how does that come back to AC3? Well, our DNA has been all about this idea that for 20 years we've been, we've been about telling We've, we've understood the implication of Christmas is that there's a message and it puts an imperative on us. It, puts, it, it gets us jazzed. It, 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 it animates us. Yes, we have to go and serve. No question. But serving earns us the right to tell. It earns us the right to tell. Personally, and friends, each one of you have been specifically placed in your life for the purpose of being a shepherd to tell. You've got family members. You've got co-workers. You've got friends in your circle. And you're a shepherd. And if you understand, it falls on you immediately. Oh, 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 this is too great. I have to tell. And would you see courage from God to as he opens up doors to tell? But then it's also what we do together, right? I mean, we kind of covenant together as a church. And we have for 20 years, every seven days, to create an inviting space. And we put a lot of time and effort to create an inviting space for all you shepherds who have been sent to tell. And so next week, you know, we'll have our Imagine Christmas thing. And I want to underline again, what a great inviting opportunity for you and I to partner as shepherds to tell. And there's somebody in your life probably who will not come to a church on a normal week, but they'd come at Christmas or Easter and you could invite them. And maybe for the first time, they'll hear the story, which is the story of all the earth. A hero has come. As tellers on mission, we lay out a proposition for the world. Yeah, you know, we don't impose it. That's not part of our business. But we are compelled to offer it freely. If Christmas is our model, AC3, we're on a mission to tell. A hero has come to grant peace through grace. But now how do we tell? And that's the third and the last part of being sent. We are sent to relate. And here's another Christmas passage. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Now skipping down, verse 14. This word, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. Do you get this, friends? John says, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That's a literal translation. The Greek has the word tabernacle, another word for tent. And tent can be a noun, but in our vernacular, it can also be a a verb, right? Some of you go tenting. Well, guess what? God went tenting. That's exactly what John says. John says, God went tenting. And where did, what's supposed to fall on you, friend, is the juxtaposition, the mashup between what the word is and where he went. That's what's supposed to hit you, like a ton of bricks. What was the starting point? Where did he come from? Who is the word? The word was God, the eternal one. Perfect, holy, pure, joyful God. And where did he go tenting? Where did he set up shop? Where did he move to? First, to a house of flesh, which can experience physical pain and disease, and finally, can die. And secondly, he moved to the earth, the pain-racked, war-racked, rebellious, cursed, evil, infested earth. You know, those two ideas don't, like, just blow you away. You're not thinking about them deeply enough. He relates to us in order to save us. He comes across the universe to go tenting in our neighborhood. So every Christian realizing the implications of Christmas should always be asking ourselves this question. Where? When? How? Am I pitching my tent and moving into the neighborhood of evil in order to relate to the world that it might be saved. I mean, if you get Christmas, you're going to start asking yourself that question. When, where, how am I pitching my tent in the neighborhood of evil? Not cloistering myself in a little ghetto, hermetically sealed and safe away from all harm, but coming up close to the problem to relate to it that it might be redeemed. That's the instinct of Christmas, friends. That's the instinct of our church. Jesus moving into our neighborhood. You know what that makes me think of? That makes me think of Paul moving into the neighborhood of the Gentiles. He could have have stayed sort of in the safe confines of his own covenant people, the Jews. But instead he goes on mission to relate to people who are not like him at all. The uncircumcised Philistines. The Gentiles. Well, that's you and me. But, uh, you know, the Jews were not really interested in touching people like you and me. And here's Paul on mission. And his whole Christmas philosophy is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me read the... Extended passage. Pay attention, please. He says, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to that law. I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles, who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. 
when I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Okay, so what Paul says is my mission is to find, quote, common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. That's a Christmas impulse in him. Do you understand? I mean, he, okay, let's talk about what he had to do. First, he had to relate to the Jew. And then he had to relate to the Gentile. These are two really big missions. Relating to the Jew means you've got to relate to people who are laboring under the law, who are not getting the, the, the entire premise of the Old Testament world, which is to look for and need grace. I mean, what other message should you get from the sacrificial system? But instead, Paul's countrymen translated that whole thing into a premise of moralism. I need to climb up the moral ladder to become acceptable to God. That's who he's trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus. So to relate to them, what does he do? He lets himself fall under the Jewish ceremonial laws, as he does one time when he's filling a vow, a vow and he follows meticulously the Mosaic prescriptions, even though he himself was no longer bound by that law. And then when he's, he's relating to Gentiles, he does the same thing on the other side. He's relating to people of no respect for God's law. They don't even know Moses. They don't care. So sometimes to reach them, he had to start with their spiritual presumptions, which were probably deeply uncomfortable for him. He had to disregard his own Jewish scruples. But now when he does this mission of relating to Jews and relating to Gentiles, he gives you two caveats so that you don't think he's a heretic. Right? So here are his two caveats. He says, okay, while I'm living with those under the law, don't think that I've given up again to this principle of moral climbing and, and submitting myself to that as a means to be right with God. No, I'm free from that law, he says. So don't, don't misunderstand. I become like a Jew, but I have not brought myself again under Mosaic law as a means to be made right before God. Conversely, while living outside the law with the Gentiles, don't misunderstand. I haven't given up the moral precepts of God. I still am under the, the law of Christ. I obey his law of love. And I've, I still embrace that as a key to my own a followership of him. He has to give those caveats so people don't think that he's completely nuts because he has, he has said already that he is ready to do everything to relate to people so that he could save some. And I hope you just see the echo here of John chapter 1. The word became flesh. Light moved into the darkness. Christmas is the mission of relating to that which is far from God. And it just implies sacrifice and stretching, doesn't it? We have a phrase in our, in our lexicon uh, that talks about the power of relating. We say, walk a mile in his shoes. Right? That, that, what does that phrase mean? It talks about the power of being able to relate to someone. Walk a mile in his shoes. Well, I'd say that Jesus did more than walk a mile, wouldn't you? He did more than just put on our shoes. He put on our whole human nature. I'd say he found some common ground, I'd say. So Christmas puts this question in front of us, my friends. What was God not willing to do to reach us? What was he not willing to do? Look at Paul. What was Paul not willing to do to save some? And now look at yourself. In light of Christmas, what am I not willing to do to reach my friends who really don't know Jesus? They're far from God. What am I not? 
What am I not willing to do? You know, as a church, for 20 years, getting back again to our DNA around here, God has called us to embrace the mission of Christmas to define our whole philosophy of outreach. I'm serious, and you, you know this if you've been around AC3 for any length of time. You know it's a passion of ours to relate, to walk a mile, to move into the neighborhood, to become all things to all men, to win some, to take on an outsider's skin as much as possible. Why? So that we can win them. The question for us has always been, what won't we do? What won't we do? What are we not willing to do to relate? What won't we do to win some? I'm telling you, AC3, there should only be one thing on that list. There should only be one thing on your list of what you won't do to win some, to relate to something or someone who's far from God. And that thing is sin. Paul was pretty clear about that, right? Just so you know, when I'm moving in with the Jews, I'm not sinning. Just so you know, his little caveat, his little, his little parentheses, just so you know, when I'm moving around with these Gentiles, I'm not sinning. I'm ready to do anything short of sin to win some. So what about you? I think maybe if you're honest, some people in this room might say, there's a lot of things on my list of what I won't do in order to relate to someone who's far from God. There's a lot of things I won't do. There's a lot of uncomfortable spaces and places, a lot of uncomfortable conversations and relationships that I won't do and won't have and won't develop and won't go to to win some. But the best missionaries have always understood the implications of Christmas because there was nothing on their list except sin. Look at this guy. <laughs> Doesn't he look weird? That's an Englishman, and he's dressed up like a Chinaman. Who is that? That's a very famous person, if you don't know. Hugely famous in miss, uh, missionary circles. That's Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor uh, began China Inland Mission, which is a mission to reach the Chinese with the good news of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you haven't heard, the, the church in China, in part because of this man, has exploded. Yes, even under communist oppression. I mean, as far as they know, they think there's more evangelical Christians in China than America. But, you know, let's get perspective, right? There's more English speakers in China than America. So, you know, just, uh, just put, put it all in perspective. It's the, the economy of scale going on there. But it's in part due to this guy's efforts to do what? To relate. To relate. See, there he is in Chinese garb. He got huge criticism from his uh, English peers for relating to the Chinese in order to win them. He put on Chinese garb, and he sang Chinese songs, and he soaked in Chinese culture, and he learned the Chinese language, and he grew a long Chinese ponytail. He did. So that he could relate to people who were far from God. And so, AC3, you, you know, you look at us, and, you know, that's been our model. That's been our example. We've been willing to do anything short of sin. And I'll tell you, over the last 20 years, yes, there's been some great experiments that we've had fail. Our heart was to relate. We've embraced unconventional methods. Our heart was to relate. We've embraced communication. Our heart was to relate. Why? So that we might win some. And it's been work. You know, there's easier ways to do church than serving and telling and relating. There's easier ways to do church. Can I tell you that? And I'll tell you this, it's also gained us sometimes some condemning looks inside the church 
world, inside the Christian community, in our town. But you know what? We've shaken most of that off because we're ready to embrace the work and we're even ready to embrace looking stupid or carnal or sinful. We're ready to look sinful without sinning. Why? To win some. To win some. And I'll tell you this, friends. In Christmas, there's nothing we won't do to relate except sin. And guess what? Everybody who follows Jesus should want to avoid evil. But there are going to be times when you will not be able to avoid the appearance of evil if you want to relate to people who are far from God. You know who you can ask to get confirmation of that fact? Jesus. Because while Jesus avoided all evil, he was perfect, he never sinned, he did not avoid the appearance of evil. We know this because of the names he garnered over his ministry. Glutton, drunkard, friend of sinners, friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. And this is Christmas. That God... The, the God, the eternal one, would come up near to need in order to win some. And friends, that's our Christmas example. That's what we've lived with and we've understood that with Jesus, he's willing to do anything short of sin. And you know how it started. It started when he was ready in heaven to demote and divest himself of privilege and power and position and descend. That's how it started. When you ask, what was he willing to do? That's where it started. And then it carried on through a few Matthew parties where he hung around with the riffraff and he got looks from self-righteous folks as he raised a glass of wine or two and touched a leper or two and talked to a Samaritan or two. And it finished when he landed on a cross to bear my shame. What was he not willing to do? To win me. There's nothing on his list. It was, it was nothing on his list. Except sin. And if I'm going to imitate God in the incarnation. Then there's going to be nothing on my list either. Nothing I wouldn't do. To win some. Save sin. Because that was the attitude of Christ. Who did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing. And stooped to relate to me. I want to model that. What about you? Let's pray. God, we now embrace the incarnation. All of its implications for us that God would be among us and now, yes, even inhabiting us, not just coming to earth, but coming to our very selves, inhabiting our very bodies. We embrace that by faith. And maybe there's someone here who's never made that faith decision, but today is a day when they reach out in faith to embrace the Christ child and he would find room in their heart. But God, we also embrace the implication of mission. That if the Christ has come, because he was sent, then we too have been sent. So Lord, send us to serve. And send us to tell. And send us to relate. For the sake of winning some, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. AC3, I'm so glad you're here taking in the challenge of Christmas. It's not just a children's story. It's a deeply moving, challenging um, imperative on our lives. So I'm glad you're here for this. Uh, we're giving you a, a little extra space in your world. We're, no, we're not doing extended for December, but listen, invite you back next week. Imagine Christmas. Invite a friend. We would love to have them in this place exploring the implications of Christmas with us together. So invite a friend. We'd love to have them. We'll see you all here next week.